turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. This morning's message is the first sermon in a series, a short series this, that we're going to do this fall in the book of Psalms. And I'd like, as you're turning in your Bibles, I'd like to begin with the question, the good life, what does this look like for you? Maybe you'd put down an answer to this question, the acronym FIRE, financially independent, retire early. Maybe you'd say, thinking about the good life just a little more modestly, debt-free, please. But when thinking about the good life, most people's thoughts, while they turn toward money, if you have all the money that you need and you're alone or you're lonely, what good is that? You might be rich, but who wants to be rich all by himself? Or what about health? Health is certainly a concern for most people as they're thinking about defining life or, or pursuing the ideal life. And I'm including here in the category of mental and emotional health as well. We could combine all of these factors and say the good life is good health, good relationships, good work, and success. And these are, none of these are bad things, but the problem with most of our off-the-cuff definitions of good life is that we tend to leave off addressing the author of life himself, God. I wonder why this is. I don't think it's that most of you don't believe in God. In fact, statistics reveal that atheists are a very small proportion of the population. I think rather it is that we are more ignorers of God than deniers of him. We tend to live our lives independently of God and we are by nature forgetful. This is one of the effects of sin. It's how it's affected our minds and our, our beings. We forget. But this isn't how it was in the beginning. It's not how God created life to be. He made you for his purposes in the world, and he sets the terms for life, for the good life. So the solution for our deficient definition of the good life is not to reject these things, all of these good things, but to begin with God and allow him to set the terms. We need to seek guidance on the good life from the author of life and his word. And of all the places we can go, for an answer to this question, a place that's especially helpful is the Psalms. But what are the Psalms? Well, they're songs, first of all, because the word psalm, P-S-A-L-M in Greek, means a song accompanied by instruments. And it's the title of this collection of songs in the Greek version of the Old Testament. So we get our English word psalms from this Greek title. But the psalms were originally written in Hebrew, and the title that accompanies the Hebrew collection of these psalms is a little different. We got our word hallel from this word. And you may, if you're familiar with Christian singing and Christian praise, the word hallelujah comes from hallel. It means praise. From these two ideas, a song accompanied by instruments and praise to the Lord, we have a great summary of this book. 
But it isn't just praise to the Lord that the Psalms deal with. The Psalms actually, if you count them up by number, there are fewer praise songs in this book than there are lamentations, which is to say sad songs in the book of Psalms far outnumber the good ones. Consider this anecdote. Somewhere around 350 A.D., a great teacher in the church named Athanasius wrote to a fellow believer whose name was Marcellianus, who was sick and recovering from his illness. And in light of his recovery, Marcellianus had decided to study, devotionally, to study the Psalms. And so Athanasius writes Marcellianus and gives this advice. Let whoever reads this book of Psalms select from it as fruits from a garden those things which he sees himself of need. For I think that in the words of this book, all of human life is covered. In every case, the words you want for your circumstances are written down for your use. What beautiful imagery. Select as from fruits from a garden the words which address the situation that you face. These words are written down for you, Athanasius says, and you can use them as your own. This means that since psalms are prayers and praises to God which cover all of life's circumstances, they give voice, I think, to every human emotion. Biblical voice, inspired, inscripturated voice. The psalms speak for us in that sense. But some psalms, in addition to speaking for us, also speak to us. These are called wisdom psalms. And the psalm before us this morning, Psalm 1, the first psalm, is, does this in a very special manner. So often in Scripture, the very first book of a collection of books or the first let the first chapter in a, in a collection of chapters sets forth the great themes. And the Psalter is no exception to this rule. Psalm 1 is like a magnificent gateway to the entire collection of 150 psalms. In fact, every other psalm draws from the themes and the terms and the ideas that are set forth in Psalm 1. I'm going to show you from Psalm 1 God's definition of the good life. I'm going to hopefully help you apply it to your life. So whether you're young or old, whether you're a new believer or even a seeker, or you've been walking with God for many years, I believe that you need to hear from God this morning about the good life. So let's give our attention to the reading of his holy word. This is Psalm 1. It is God's infallible and inspired word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. and all that he does, he prospers." The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray and ask him to bless not only the reading, but its preaching. Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you that it does give us guidance beyond just our own ideas of what life should be like, what we should pursue, our aims, our hopes. We thank you that in your goodness you do not dismiss our desires, but you arrange them in their right sequence. First God, first and foremost God. And so, God, we desire to hear from you this morning about how our lives should be. And if we are out of order or in disarray, please arrange us, arrange, rearrange our thinking and our circumstances so that we would more be aligned with your purposes for us and for the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So three points this morning about the good life. First of all, the definition of the good life is earthly, earthly. This is its earthly definition. By earthly, I don't mean worldly as the, as the Bible sometimes talks about like sinful, but I mean this world, this age, this time, right here, right now, earthly. I start here because religious people and perhaps Christians in particular are accustomed to looking for good things from God in the sweet by and by, which is true. And we're going to come back to that a little later in my message, but we need to understand that what is laid out before us in Psalm 1 describes life as God intends it to be lived now, earthly. Take a look at our text. It said, blessed is the man who, and then a number of things follow on from this, but I want to key in on this word, blessed or blessed. This word translates a Hebrew word, asherah, which comes from the Hebrew word asher or asher, which means happy or fortunate, or we might even say lucky, um, providentially cared for, uh, well provided in every sense. You can sort of fill in the gaps of this range of ideas. This is a common word in the Bible, and it's a common way of speaking. Scripture frequently addresses life that is happy, life that is good, life that is ideal. For example, the Queen of Sheba, when she visited Solomon to see for herself with her own eyes all of the treasures that Solomon accumulated and particularly all of his wisdom, she said, happy are your men and happy are your servants who stand in your presence continually and hear your wisdom. That's not something that the Queen of Sheba was saying is something that Solomon's servants had in the future. That someday they'll be happy once, once they figure all of it out. No, she's saying that every day that the servants of Solomon get to hear the wisdom of Solomon. By the way, Solomon wrote many of the Proverbs that we have in the Bible. If you would like to read about Solomon's wisdom, it's remarkable. And to hear that kind of real time, live, What a blessing. What a present, well-founded arrangement of their lives to be a servant of Solomon. Amazing. 
David, who wrote many of the Psalms, explains the happiness of forgiveness when he says, blessed is the one, happy is the one, fortunate is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I will just speak and remind you here, there's nothing, there's the one thing that money can't buy is a clean conscience. And David is giving voice to that. He's saying, man, it is good. It is good, real time, right now, to sit and have a clear conscience. Some of you this morning have a clear conscience. Some of you don't. It's agony. It's misery to be afflicted with the guilt of your sin and have nowhere to go with that. To be burdened down and beating yourself down. And David says, blessing and happiness and goodness for the clarity of mind to know that my sins are forgiven. If you don't know that, you need to know that. Psalm 127 explains that the man is happy or blessed or fortunate when his quiver is full of children. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So these are blessedness statements or blessing statements. I'm going to call them asherisms because the word underlying our word blessed is asher, which means happy. What are asherisms? Well, first of all, an asherism is a description. When, when we read, blessed is the man who, something is being described for you. A picture is being painted. It's quite a vivid picture. There's actually two parables here. We have the parable of the tree. We have the parable of the wheat. The picture that's described of the tree is a thriving, healthy tree. It's laden with fruit. It's full of leaves. It's by a quiet river, a babbling brook. I just want to lie under this tree and enjoy the, the late summer afternoon. Impl- implied here is another tree, a, a withered, ugly, dying tree that's cracked in its branches. It's in the middle of a desert. It's it's no good, it's about to topple over, and no one wants to take shade under it. The other p- vivid description or parable is of the wicked are like the chaff. Chaff, if you can picture a, a grain or a, like a stalk of wheat, so you've got the brown grass, and at the, at the top are these beautiful kernels clustered around the stem. And as you strip the kernels off of, that, off of that shaft of wheat, you pull those seeds, and each seed is covered with a shell. That's the chaff. And as you crush the shell, out comes the grain which you use to make bread. And with a puff of air, whew, the chaff is blown away. So in this parable the scripture doesn't say so but the godly the righteous the blessed that the happy man is the one who's that kernel of grain it's useful it's beneficial it's tasty it's valuable but no one cares about the chaff so we have a description in this asherism it describes a state of affairs which is not taking place in heaven or in the life to come But in this life, this man, this arrangement of his life is blessed 
because it matches God's ideal pattern. It's, it's the good life as God intends it to be lived, but it's also an invitation. By describing something so wonderful as God's ideal life, God's pattern for human existence, you are being invited to consider your life. Take a look. Where am I standing? What kind of person am I? What have I accomplished so far in my short few years on the planet? Who have I met along the way? What mistakes have I made? And there is an invitation. No matter who you are, where you've come from, whether you're young or old, you're being invited in this psalm to reevaluate and say, maybe my path isn't the path that I should be traveling. Maybe what I thought was the good life isn't so good after all. Make this life, consider making this life your ideal life. Try it out. Give it a test drive. Try it on for size. Make an effort to live according to this pattern and and see what happens. See, as a wisdom psalm, there's something mysterious about it. It's not direct. You should do this. It's indirect. Consider this. You might want to think about this. It's sort of like parenting teenagers. Don't tell them directly. Suggest it indirectly. And in that regard, it's also, though indirect, it is a correction. This asherism, blessed is the man who serves as a correction to any way of thinking that you might have about the good life that is mismatched mismatched from God's description. The phrase, blessed is the man who corrects our thinking, it reminds you that you don't get to define the blessed life. This is a truth claim. All other definitions of blessing, of goodness, of happiness, that fall short of this one are out of bounds. So it's a description, it's an invitation, this asherism is a correction, and finally, I think it's a comfort. It is a reminder that if you indeed are trying to live your life according to this pattern, I know many of you are, this description of God's ideal life, God's definition of the good life, and you're struggling, you're suffering, it's not working, it's like you're climbing up the sand dune and sliding back down, you're not crazy. Right here in black and white, God is telling you this is the way it's supposed to be. It's just that the world, this sinful and fallen as it is, is making things difficult for you. It doesn't mean that the path that you're on is wrong. It might seem impossible in the moment, in this chapter of your life, to realize anything close to the good life as this psalm describes it. But this is, this is a an asherism which is giving us comfort. Hang on. Things will not always be this way. You're going to come out the other side. Be comforted. Even though you aren't happy like you thought you'd be at this point, even though you're not experiencing fulfillment, even though you've had some setbacks, you are living life the way God wants you to live it. And you can call yourself happy 
even if you don't fully feel the happiness of being happy. Some people distinguish this by saying, I'm joyful, not happy, which makes sense. But perhaps we need to redefine happiness itself. I've, I've explained this in another message at another time. Happiness comes from the word happenings, your haps. And happy is someone whose happenings are, are going according to plan. Maybe just not your plan. So you can be happy, even if unhappy. If you fill the word happy with God's meaning and not just your own. If you include the providence and plan of God in your understanding of, of happiness and not just limit it to your own. This is comfort. All this to say, when God says, blessed is the man who he's describing, as I've said, in this life, the kind of life, in this life, that God created you to have. This is asheritic life, true happiness. It's the most fulfilling way to live. So even if it involves suffering, provided you're doing the kinds of things that this psalm describes, you can take comfort and have confidence. You can rest assured. You can be at peace that God is with you and you're on the right path. My second point, the second thing that, this, that Psalm 1 teaches you about the good life is what it is not. It's a, it's a negative. The opposite of the good life must be avoided. That's my second point. Notice right out of the gates, the definition of the good life is negative. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. This is a series of three vivid negatives. It's worth repeating. Walking, standing, and sitting. And each of these three vivid verbs of action or movement are matched with a vivid figure or character, sinners, or rather wicked first, sinners second, and scoffers. And then joining these two things is some sort of an action, counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, and the seat of scoffers. One important feature to notice, a lot could be said about this, but one important feature that you really need to notice is that there is a progression of intensity. The first verb is walking. The second is standing. And the third is sitting. So the movement in those verbs slowly grinds to a halt. Walking, standing, and then sitting. Walking along, whistling a merry tune, you see the wicked. You stand, you're listening in. Pull up a chair, stay a while, you're sitting with the scoffers. That progression of intensity is true to life. My experience with sin, and I think probably yours is as well, it never starts off with the biggies. It's usually camouflaged, 
Calvin explains it this way, little by little, men are induced to turn from the right path. They do not with the first step immediately reject God, but having once begun to give ear to evil counsel, he says, Satan leads them step by step farther astray till they rush headlong into open transgression. And the final step, open transgression, is a seat. How appropriate. You know, if you, don't, if you come to a friend's house and you don't want to stay, they'll say, sit down. You're like, no, I'm just here for a minute. I just came to drop something off or to ask a quick question or to pick something up. Because you know, once you sit down, you're in for at least 30 minutes. The idea of seat in terms of this psalm suggests a kind of hardness of heart, a settled situation. Like the body is settled when it's seated, so the soul, when it's seated in the seat of scoffers, is settled in a kind of resistance to God, a calcified calcification of the arteries of the heart. But this never happens all at once, Calvin's saying, and I think he's right. Little by little, choices are made, decisions are made. And I want to speak particularly here to a teenager or a college student. A word to the wise. Habits are hard to break. And this is especially true when you're young. You say, well, what do you mean, preacher? I, th- I thought when I'm young, I, my, my brain is pliable. It's flexible. I can easily start habits. I can do things, learn things. I can kind of do whatever I want. I say, well, that's, that's absolutely true. But along with all that flexibility is a deep naivete. Uh, an, an innocence which borders on a culpable innocence that says, I can do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But it does matter. Young people, you do not know that you are starting a habit when you're listening to that person or that podcast or that song. You don't know that you're starting a habit when you're trying that thing. You have your whole life in front of you. You can try what you want. You're young. You're healthy. It won't kill you. But these early choices, these early experiments are habit-forming. You see, taking God seriously isn't a project for the old. It's a project for the young. The job description of a young believer in the Bible is to set an example in zeal. That's what the Scriptures say. The Bible says you're not supposed to wait till you're old to become a stalwart Christian. You're to practice that as a young man or a young woman. This is especially important if you've been blessed with Christian parents. In spite of their sin, You need the wisdom of your parents in order to attain your life's dreams. And I know you want to attain them. You need the wisdom of your parents. Again, sinful though they may be. This progression, I think, is a warning for the young. It's a warning for you today. But it isn't just the opposite that's shown here. God also shows us the right way. I mentioned the tree a few minutes ago. The tree is supposed to embody this 
this man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. We see what he doesn't do in verse 1, but in verse 2 we discover what he does do. He delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on the law day and night. This is what's called parallelism, two different statements that speak to the same idea in different ways. It's as if there was a beautiful marble statue and I flicked one switch and light shines on the statue from my left and then I flick another switch, parallelism, and the light shines on the other side of the statue and the whole thing bursts into three-dimensional beauty. So in this case, the parallelism, there's two parallel statements. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Need to break this down a little bit. Law doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments, although if you do not know the Ten Commandments, you should. Statistics say a lot of you don't know all Ten Commandments from heart. You should know them. If you're going to delight in them, you at least need to know them. My experience actually is the more you know something, the more you delight it. So we could, we could do far worse than by memorizing the Ten Commandments. But it isn't just memorizing, it's delighting in them. And it's not just the Ten Commandments. This law here is primal. What's the law beneath the Ten Commandments? There's a law behind the law that I believe our author is referring to. It's this I am God, you are my creature. You're made to live in the world that I made for my glory and your pleasure. That's the law that we must delight in. The law of the world, the the, the heartbeat of the universe. Primal, as I said. Not just the Ten Commandments, but if we were to zero in on the Ten Commandments, we would start at the preface. I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The preface to the Ten Commandments set the stage. I am the Savior, you are the saved. I am the Redeemer, you are the redeemed. I am the Holy One, and you are the sinner in need of mercy. That's the law of the Lord that we're to delight in. And while the delight of the law is going to take us down beautiful, specific pathways of maybe even studying the Mosaic Commandments, That's not the good life for everyone. Not everyone needs to be a a Bible nerd and kind of know that there are 612 or 627 Jewish commandments. I don't know how many there are. It's a lot. Not everyone can nuance out out of the Mosaic law kind of all the, the intricacies. And that's kind of boring, actually, for most of us. But every single one of us needs to delight in the law of the Lord. Law of the world, I am God. You are my creature. You're made to honor me and to enjoy the world which I have created. This is sometimes called the two ways doctrine, what we see here. He does not stand in the way of sinners. That's not the law of the Lord. That's the law of man. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, verse 6. Two ways. 
It's a common concept. You've heard some people say it's my way or the highway. There's a famous poem by Robert Frost called The Road Not Taken that discusses these two ways. Two roads diverged in a wood, he writes, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. We see the two ways in Scripture again and again, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. We have the doctrine of the two ways. And Jesus says, he says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. But the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few there are who find it. I had a pastor when I was a grad student in seminary who described this psalm and gave a sermon on the psalm. I remember it vividly. He said, there's an easy way and there's a hard way. And that was his way of summarizing the two ways in Psalm 1. The easy way is the blessed way. It's the way of, of asherism, of happiness, of God's good life. The hard way is the way of the wicked, and both ways are detailed here. But when I shared this with my wife this week in family devotions, we read the psalm a couple of days ago, she answered, it depends on how you look at it. And she's right. Sometimes the easy way is hard. Sometimes the way of God's best blessing feels like an uphill battle, and sometimes the hard way looks very, very easy because there's lots of people traveling down that way. <laughs> you know, the train station to, or the trains that go to God's blessing, there's like one a day. But they leave every 15 minutes going to the city of man and man's definition of blessing. I think this sheds some light on the original question about what is the good life. I think it helps us see why sometimes living the good life is so difficult. It isn't just that we're surrounded by sinners, scoffers, mockers, and wicked men and women. We ourselves are sinners, scoffers, and mockers. Many times in your behavior, you yourself are walking, standing, and sitting in the way that's described here. The Apostle Paul says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In terms of Psalm 1, we could say, all have sinned and wandered off the path of the good life that God has created for us, and instead we're walking, standing, and sinning in the way of sinners. We don't just sin, you see, we are sinners, sinners by nature. So I think the poet begins with the warnings that he does for a reason that we need to know right out of the bat, right out of the gate, that none of us begin as blessed or happy. But we begin as sinners. And the only people who find the good life and enter through the gates of the blessed life are those who find it by God's grace, which brings me to my last point. The perfect fulfillment of the good life is in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who has heard and accepted the invitation offered here, blessed is the man. Jesus is the only one that's done this perfectly. Jesus is the only one who lived the most thriving, blessed, happiest life that could be lived on the planet. Jesus did it. Well, who is he? He is the eternal son of God who was clothed in human flesh. He is the God-man who was born of a virgin born with a true human nature as a, 
as an instance, the first instance of a new humanity so that all who look to Christ and his divine and human nature, all who trust in Christ and his perfect, obedient life of the Lord, all who live for Christ, having received the sacrifice of him dying on the cross. Those are those that David is addressing here in this psalm, blessed is the man. And trusting in Christ makes a difference about how we think about the good life. We, we automatically know that if Christ has defined the good life, then it can't exclude suffering. It includes it by definition because he suffered. We will also suffer. It also makes a difference in the way that we meditate or delight in the law of the Lord. We read the scripture as, as this complex document from Genesis to Revelation, all of which points to Jesus Christ. The scriptures give us the meaning of Christ as he is coming in the Old Testament. And it explains his life and death and resurrection in the New Testament. So the perfect fulfillment of the good life is Jesus Christ. And it makes a difference in the way we not only expect suffering, but then the way we endure it. Your failure to attain the good life of your dreams, seen in light of his suffering and death, can be understood as a temporary experience not the permanent state of affairs. And he knows. He hasn't just modeled this for you. He knows. He is with you. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Of course, he knows the way of the wicked as well. But the knowledge being spoken of in verse 6 of my text is the knowledge of an intimate friend. It's the knowledge of a, of a lover. It's the knowledge of a father, of a parent. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous because God does not know them. God does not know you if you do not know God through Christ. Well, I began my sermon this morning by challenging, to th- challenging you to think about your life and the life you desire in positive terms. He's not against health. He's not against wealth. He's certainly not against family and friends and fortune and fame. But he's against all of those things if they are cut off or divorced from God himself. I mentioned Athanasius, a 4th century church father, in his famous letter to Marcellinus. In that letter, he also said this, Most of Scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. This is what makes the book of Psalms unique because for the most part, the words in them are directed towards God and they give you language or vocabulary that you can use as you seek to pursue the blessed or happy life that God desires you to have. Well, what can we take away from this morning's message? First of all, the focus on this psalm and God's word is important. He's described the law as the thing we meditate on, and we've seen this is not just the Ten Commandments, but it's thinking about life, all of life, as under God's lordship. So meditating on God's law day and light means meditating and delighting that you don't get to and you don't have to define the terms of good life. God does. And so when you read the scriptures and memorize the scriptures, you're reading and memorizing 
the path of blessing and you're looking for it. It helps you orient yourself as a creature living in God's amazing world. That's a, that's a first application. Secondly, there's an honesty in this psalm that recognizing we are living amongst wicked people. As Christians, there is a danger of all times of losing our faith because of the sea of iniquity that we live in. You must learn to separate yourself from these things and these people. This is very clearly taught in the psalm. There are specific individual persons that you are to avoid in this psalm. Avoid them. Stay away from them. Do not have a relationship with them. Imagine if the world of the psalmist's day was fraught with corruption, how much more can we say that ours is? And we've made progress since the time that this psalm was written, probably the 3rd or 4th century B.C. Much progress. But we've also advanced in evil and wickedness and mockery of God. The lesson here is that if you want to be godly, you need to find strategic ways to build a barrier between you and the people around you who hate God, who mock God, who, who scorn God, who, who make fun of you for, for having faith. I'm not saying you have no non-Christian friends or that you don't listen to, you only listen to Caleb or that you don't listen to podcasts, for instance. I mentioned that earlier that that aren't specifically Christian. No, but you do so with wisdom. And you notice that if you're starting to walk in a certain way, that's the beginning. And you need to be careful. Do not allow the world to infect you with its pollution. And finally, because no one can be completely free of sin in this life, nor really should we try. Perfectionism is its own kind of sin. This psalm draws our minds to the truly blessed, truly happy, truly fortunate man. His name is Jesus. And so we approach God only and always through Christ, who lived for you, who died for you, who procured the blessed life that God is inviting you to enjoy. Respond to that invitation. Receive Christ, cling to Christ, and you will be blessed. Let us pray. Father, as we close this morning's time of instruction and challenge and encouragement in your word, I pray for that one, that person, that boy or girl, man or woman who does not know you. This psalm paints an extremely vivid and frightening picture of being blown away like a worthless person husk of grain with just a puff of the wrath of Almighty God. So Lord, may this be a warning to that one, to that person, to not delay, to not put off till old age a decision that must be made today. But may that person cling to you, turn to you in faith and simply pray, God, I am a sinner. I have been a scoffer, a mocker, but I desire the good life that only you can offer. And I realize that all of my attempts to build up and to carry out my own plans for health and wealth and fame, fortune, have left me with a conscience that's deeply burdened.
please, Lord, forgive my sins. Turn me back. Bring me home. Bring me into your arms. And Lord, I also pray for the weary, struggling Christian this morning who thought he or she was pursuing life as you intended it, but feels like he's climbing up a sand hill and constantly slipping back down and can't get traction on a muddy road, who is driving in a fog without direction, who's disoriented and surrounded by temptations, constantly giving in. Lord, I pray that you would refresh him or her with the knowledge that Jesus is sufficient. He is the blessed man par excellence, and we need but look to Christ and cling to Christ. He knew sin. He knew suffering, not his own, but he tasted sin for us. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh that we might experience the blessing of God. So, Lord, I pray for the weary Christian that he would be built up in his faith and refreshed in the knowledge that you have not abandoned him. The program has not expired. The good life still awaits, Lord, in this life. Give us endurance and patience, for we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.